This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In a move that surprised uh, quite a few people, Federal Reserve Vice Chair Stanley Fisher announced his resignation. He will be leaving his role in the middle of October, but it opens the door to a question that's been out there in the last few months. What is the future of Janet Yellen? Will she also be leaving the central bank? Even though she has said that she would not resign, the end of her term comes up in just a few months. To take a look at this, we are joined here in studio by Peter Connie Brown, a Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School, Krista Schwarz, who is Assistant Professor of Finance here at Wharton, and joining us on the phone, Sebastian Malaby, Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Peter, Krista, great to see you in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sebastian, great to have you on the phone with us. Thank you. Uh, surprised by the move, Krista? Yes, um, I was certainly surprised by the move, uh, which I think was, you know, as you had said, likely consensus. Um, however, given the deal that uh, Trump made with the Republicans, uh, sorry, with the Democrats yesterday, I think it's almost something that would have been, you know, a more headline piece. Um, had other things not happened in the hurricane and everything else that's going on at the moment. Right. Peter? I think that's the story of the Trump administration and the Federal Reserve. There's so many things happening right now that would lead headlines in an alternative reality where the <laughs> headlines weren't being led by uh, by so much uh, Washington tumult. Um, it really is a cha- uh, an era of potential change uh, at the Fed. Uh, and Fisher uh, might have been a part of it. There was a time, and Sebastian and I had talked about this many months ago, there was a time when Trump was first elected before inauguration, when you looking at looking at the Fed, there were two outstanding vacancies that were longstanding. That if the three governors who uh, were likeliest to resign, Yellen, Fisher, and Dan Trullo, if they had stayed, even after their leadership terms had expired, mm-hmm. um, which was a possibility to them, uh, then the Trump administration's ability to influence the Fed through governance changes would have been quite limited. Now we've seen Trullo leave. Uh, he left last spring. We now see Stanley Fisher leave, uh, and so the question really is: Will Yellen stay, whether she's reappointed or not? And uh, and uh, we'll see. I want to see about that. Sebastian. Well, I think we have to take it for its value completely that Stan Fisher left, you know, for personal reasons, um, health reasons in the family, which have nothing to do with Trump or politics or anything else. It does then, though, leave this question that Peter alludes to wide open. You've got normally seven governors uh, on the Washington board of the Fed, the central um, decision-making unit. Uh, And right now, you know, we're down to three once Stan Fisher does step down next month. Uh, So there's an enormous uh, number of, you know, there's basically more than half of the slots are vacant. And if Janet Yellen does leave when her term as chair expires next February, um, that means there's only two out of seven uh, representing continuity. And so the president has enormous leeway uh, to put his own stamp on the Fed. The mystery is we have no idea what he wants to do with that power. Peter, what's what's kind of the legacy of, of Stan Fisher? Well, he's had an extraordinary career, extraordinarily varied. Uh, he has, he's been an outstanding central banker in the United States and in Israel, a policymaker at, uh, at uh, our multinational financial institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, 
uh, as a scholar and a teacher. As a scholar, he's one of the, uh, the great theorists of central bank independence and monetary policy uh, generally. And as a teacher, he's uh, famous for teaching Ben Bernanke, uh, Mario Draghi, um, uh, Greg Mankiw at Harvard, uh, and many others. So he's had an outstanding uh, impact. Uh, so he's he's justly deserves a, a, a healthy retirement. Uh, unfortunate that um, you know the if if his personal life you know is, is re- uh, requiring more emergency attention than otherwise. The thing that makes me as a Fed watcher and someone who appreciates Fed continuity as opposed to disruption uh, is that uh, this is n- very far from ideal. It would have been much better for Stanley Fisher to remain vice chair right. uh, a year uh, through his term. Which would have allowed him either to work with a reappointed Yellen, which I hope will, is the outcome of uh, Trump's decision-making process, or uh, to help guide the Fed with the new Fed chair. Uh, the vice chair role is uh, is uh, an ambiguously defined one, uh, but it's not like the vice president. You know, it's uh, uh, where it's just a stand-in for the president in case of emergency. Vice chair exercises enormous uh, leadership, and to have both of these spots vacant simultaneously or filled with, with uh, new additions uh, troubles me. I think it could be could be very disruptive, depending on the identity of, of uh, the people who fill those slots. Chris, so what do you think is, is going to happen with Janet Yellen? It's great. It's a big... It's, it's, it's the 100-pound it's the, the gorilla, gorilla in the room right now. It is, yeah. So I um, think expectations have shifted from little likelihood of her staying to now, you know, you look at the headlines this morning of Cohn being out of favor. And so increased possibility that, and Trump also has spoken favorably about her, um, the things that he had actually criticized her for during the campaign, keeping interest rates too low, you know, now that he's in office, it actually, that is what he would likely want. Um, I honestly don't think that this is... A priority for him at the moment. I think tax reform is foremost on his mind. And so, yeah, it is a a bit um, interesting that we now are down to, you know, three governors and then two um, if Yellen leaves and he would need to nominate someone in the not too far future um, as chair if, uh, if he were to be replacing Yellen. That said, I think there's a, you know, decent likelihood that he may decide to go ahead and um, she hasn't spoken unfavorably of him. Right. And that seems to be one of his he's either black or white about people. And right now and talks to, about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you're either in favor or out of favor. And um, she hasn't yet done anything to be necessarily out of favor. What do you think, uh, Sebastian, about Janet Yellen? Well, in terms of her reappointment prospects, I think any appointment in the Trump era is clouded by the fact that the president seems to love nothing better than, you know, being back on The Apprentice and being able to fire people or not fire them and keep everybody in suspense. If you think back to the uh, absolute, you know, melodrama of appointing the Secretary of State with, you know, everybody, uh, you know, for... (laughs) Uh, being wheeled in Mitt Romney and so forth um, to be considered and then to be disappointed. Uh, Giuliani was another one in that line, I remember. I I fear that with the Fed, we might experience a similar thing with, you know, a drip, drip, drip of rumors about who's in the frame and who's not in the frame, um, which at some point is probably going to unsettle the markets because all of this 
uncertainty about the leadership of the Fed, the vacancies on the board, coincides with a period when the Fed is about to make some pretty consequential uh, monetary policy, policy choices, right? So at the next meeting, uh, which is coming up um, on September 18th, 19th, they're supposed to say something about finally shrinking the enormous balance sheet. Um, there's one more interest rate increase um, penciled in for this year. So after a period in which rates were basically kept at zero without alteration for seven years, we're suddenly into a period when uh, monetary policy is complicated by the fact that employment seems to be full, and yet inflation is uh, weak. And so which direction you go in, particularly with markets that have sometimes appeared to be somewhat overheated, weirdly uh, low volatility in the face of all these political uncertainties, um, you know, you've, you've just got a very complicated moment for um, the central bank, uh, which comes right when their leadership is most up in the air. And I think that could be unsettling to markets. Uh, and so unnecessary melodrama around the Fed chair reappointment um, is going to be bad news. We talked before we went on uh, about the name Gary Cohn, which obviously has been brought up uh, quite a bit in the in the last few months, uh, but seemingly reporting in the last several days says that maybe Gary Cohn would not be somebody that would find a spot in the Federal Reserve coming up in a few months. Right. Uh, CNN reported uh, that uh, a GOP source said that Gary Cohn is more likely to get the electric chair than the Fed chair uh, at this point, which is uh, is stunning. Recall that the reason that he fell out of the president's favor is that he said in an interview on the record with the Financial Times that the White House can and must do better to combat white supremacy. Right. I would have thought that this is a relatively, uh, uh, you know, anodyne statement that most people would agree with, but this is enough to to put Gary Cohn completely out of favor, it seems. I think a couple things to keep in mind. One is that this is a process and uh, the president's favor or disfavor shifts fairly dramatically. So I, I wouldn't rule Gary Cohn out completely. The other thing, though, is that that is very interesting is if Gary Cohn is out... He's not just out for Fed chair. That means he's also out uh, in the Fed search committee, right? He has been quarterbacking this process to find out who will be Yellen's successor. He's also been in charge of the one nomination that has gone through that just today cleared the Senate Banking Committee, which is Randy Quarles for the uh, vice chairman of, uh, uh, for supervision. If he's out, who is in? That's my question. And um, that is enough to really uh, raise eyebrows. At the, at the inauguration... My question was not not aware of what Gary Cohn's influence would be. Is, would be, is that are we going to see at the Fed kind of a, a Reince Priebus sort of approach, so establishmentarian Republicans, the likes of which we might have seen in a Mitt Romney presidency? Right. Or is it going to be more Bannonist in flavor? And Randy Quarles is completely in the mold of of Mitt Romney. I hope that the Senate confirms him, even though I disagree with him in several several key respects. I think he is a, a credible appointment. The question is, what about these other vacancies? Uh, are yeah. they going to be these kinds of credible appointments? Is uh, a, a somewhat soft norm of reaching across the aisle and appointing and maybe even pairing a Republican with a Democrat? Is that going to happen? Uh, I think uh, all of this is is on the table. But the biggest question of all is, it's clear that Donald Trump, I agree with Krista, is not paying attention to this process very sure. closely. Right. Who is then? And if it's not Gary Cohn, who are the alternatives? Steve, Ban- Steve Bannon's obviously out of the White House, but that doesn't mean that it might be other people who have uh, a multi-decade interest in ending uh, the Fed as a functioning institution. Krista? 
So, I mean, nominating a candidate is the first step, but then passing the Senate, I think, would be the barrier to having someone who is very much out of mainstream Republican or even a moderate Democrat um, actually stepping into one of those chair boardmanships or boardship board board seats. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it unlikely that there will be any dramatic um, out of the norm type of actual confirmation uh, for a board member. Now there are a lot of slots available, but it's going to take a lot of time for each of them to go through. You know, Obama had tried to get two through and that didn't go for quite some time. Right. Um, and also with the just a comment about the, the Fisher news, this is something that brings forward his expiration by a short period of time. So it's not... Um, I agree with Peter that there is, you know, a possibility he could have stayed on until 2020 when his board seat expired. But I don't think the expectation for that occurring was very high. And I think with Yellen, it's actually quite the same. She could, in principle, stay on until 2024. Right. But I don't think that she will do so well, if she's not appointed. Reappointed. How, how often is it, Peter, that 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 a, a person that is that is put to the board of governors stays their whole their whole period of time is it more the norm that they do or more the norm as in the case obviously there there seemingly could be a medical issue here with stanley fisher or his family that they don't stay the full period well it's uh, very much the norm that they don't stay so the average term is a little less than six years right. uh, for a 14-year term uh, there have been a couple of exceptions uh uh you know notably william mcchesney martin who was fed chair uh, for almost 20 years and alan greenspan the same um there was a, a governor uh, who stayed almost 28 years uh, in, between the 1930s and 1960s. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's it's much more normal to uh, to resign early. I think that's regrettable. I think it feeds a dysfunction in Fed governance, uh, it, not just at the Fed, but more so in the way that we think about these. I mean, let's keep in mind that when, when Richard Nixon resigned from the presidency in August of 1974, the week before, the Democratic Senate confirmed some of his Fed appointments. Right. right? This yeah. is at the height of, uh, uh, of bringing down the presidency. Right. The Senate was prepared to convict on a vote for impeachment. We are not in that place uh, in terms of, of the constitutional crisis in the Trump administration. And yet our, our ability to put people on the Fed's Board of Governors is worse than it was in 1974. And so uh, I think that that we should look at ways that we might reform the Fed to make the job of governor more enticing. I think counterintuitively it might be by shrinking the tenure so that it's not such an awful, uh, an awfully long period. Mm -hmm. um, but also that there, we, we should just go back to the earlier model. We, before the Obama administration, we'd never even had three vacancies. Right. right? Uh, and in the Obama administration that happened uh, uh, three or four times. Uh, now that's where we've been. Uh, for uh, for a long time here in the in the Trump administration, and uh, it doesn't look like we're reversing. I think that's what we should do. Sebastian, what impact do you think it has uh, of having these open seats uh, on the Federal Reserve Board right now? Well, I think um, it's bad for the credibility of the institution um, to have uh, these vacancies, such that decisions are seen to be made by. 
um, you know, a smaller number of people. It's already a problem to have, you know, concentrated technocratic power in the hands of these uh, these technocrats, and it's, you know, very consequential for the economy, what happens to interest rates. And if that power appears to be even more narrowly concentrated because half the seats are vacant on the board, uh, I just don't think that that enhances the legitimacy uh, of the central bank. So, I mean, that's one thing. I think, on the other hand, that the practical functions of the Fed, whether it's running the transfer of payments in, in the economy and so forth, those things can be done by the highly competent uh, staff. And I suspect that not having governors overseeing those functions is something that you can live with uh, for quite a while. So I think it's more just in terms of the, the sort of democratic credibility of the institution. Peter? I'd, I'd agree and disagree with Sebastian on this. I'd agree absolutely that this it becomes a question of democratic credibility, not just in, in diffusing the, the decision-making across a committee uh, and moving away from the sort of uh, Fed as emperor uh, approach that has, that has uh, been the case in other points of history, but also because this is the primary and in some ways the only way of exercising democratic accountability is this governance process. And so when we're deprived of this, then we're not able to go through the process that many people hate, but it is actually quite, uh, quite transparent and quite useful, of vetting uh, these people. Not, now, Randy Quarles' nomination wasn't driving headlines, for sure, uh, but it was in, one, in certain corners of, uh, of the blogosphere and newspapers, and his entire record was laid pretty bare. I think that's really useful. Um, and we're not getting that by not getting these vacancies. Now, the other problem with this is that um, just as a matter of governance, the, the Fed lacks a quorum right now uh, to do some of its emergency, uh, uh, to use some of its emergency authority. Um, you have to have five governors, for example, to, to uh, trigger emergency lending in times of crisis. Right. That requirement can be relaxed in certain kinds of emergencies, but not below four. So if we get to the point where we only have three governors, then for many key decisions, we lack quorum. Uh, and that just feeds dysfunction uh, at the top, uh, and so that uh, I think that could be could be very problematic. Krista, so an, another just interesting fact is that if more than a majority of the governors end up meeting, um, they need to make this public in the Federal Register a week prior. And if you have three governors left, that means you have to time when you get to the cafeteria carefully so that you don't run into another governor <laughs> and break the law. Um, and, and, you know, they all work on the same floor. So um, the other point I was going to make was that the whole motivation of having these 14-year terms was to have them expiring in two-year staggered increments right. such that you wouldn't have one administration having that much influence right. on who ended up on the board. And that, you know, as Peter has said, that is something that's been kind of disrupted also because of the fact that it's unlikely that uh, a governor does stay on for 14 years. For academics, for instance, um, it's typically only two years that they'll stay because that's how long of leave they get when they uh, are employed as a, a university faculty. So um, I, I, one other point to make as well is that it's not just the governors who are on the FOMC, but then you have five rotating Fed presidents too. Sure. Yeah. So we're not in a complete vacuum of some type of conversation and discussion 
um, going on at the meetings. You still have these other five presidents that are always going to be there. Um, four of them rotate, and then one, the New York Fed president, is always there. And so that's a bit of continuity as well. And the New York Fed president is the vice chair of the FOMC. Um, so at least that bolsters it uh, a bit more, though I completely agree that for all uh, you know purposes of seeming like a functioning uh, institution, it would be good to fill these these slots. So if we're starting to you know game plan this, then Peter, uh, are, are there potential nominees that, that come to mind right off the top? that would be potential people to step in and, and fill a couple of these slots? I think Krista and Sebastian would be great. Um, and they're, they're, well, uh, we've, talked about, we've talked about you running the Fed <laughs> on this show before, too. Well, intriguingly, I'm, I'm too young, I would think, although I'm older than Kevin Warsh was when he uh, was appointed in the Bush administration, a name that we should keep in mind, who's leading uh, in, in some cases this, uh, this chase. I mean, the, the Trump administration has floated a couple of names, uh, one of which they withdrew, uh, David Nason, who's the CEO of GE Capital, uh, who I think would have been an outstanding choice. Uh, one they, I, and maybe uh, Sebastian or Kristen know better about this, but Marvin Goodfriend, who's an academic, yeah. uh, who had, had been paired with Randy Quarles, not in a partisan sense, they're both Republicans, um, but only Quarles was advanced, Goodfriend wasn't. And I'm not sure why. The, the vetting has been very thorough. Krista? Um, but he hasn't been nominated. Um, I, so I've also heard of Marvin as a possible um, as a possible candidate. I don't know why that didn't go through. Um, someone who I think Trump will unlikely nominate, but who would be good, uh, Jamie Dimon. <laughs> is 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 the importance of having somebody that is the CEO of a company is is that an important component to this or? Is it you know being a, a somebody who is you know working at a at a at a college or a university right now? Is there is there a a favorite one side or the other on that in your mind? I think ideally you want a combination of them. You want to have voices from different types of views and perspectives and right. experiences that they can draw from. Um, I think you know the most likely next candidate would be a community banker because that's something that has been lacking and there has been a lot of push to have someone come on the board who can speak for the banks that have been a bit um, overwhelmed with the increased scope of regulation yeah. and being able to comply with all of that as the big banks can and most of it is targeting the big banks. So I think that that's a voice that is important to have forthcoming. Sebastian? I mean, I think if we're talking about the chair position specifically, then the key qualification is actually not being a CEO. I mean, I, I think that's especially helpful. I think the two things you need are to be very credible on the economics. And so that's why, um, you know, the recent appointments have had uh, economics PhDs, you'd have to go back quite a long way um, into the 70s uh, to find someone who didn't have that, and that person failed. Um, uh, so first thing is credible on the economics, and second thing is skillful politically, because you do have to maneuver. Uh, and I think that's the great lesson of Alan Greenspan's tenure, that his success as chairman was as much about Machiavellian political power plays as it was about his command of the data. Um, these are the two things that really matter. I'm not sure that 
everybody in the Senate who might be involved in the confirmation process of the next chair necessarily sees that or accepts that. So I think the potential for, you know, going back to what Krista was saying, um, yes, the Senate is a useful check on the appointment of somebody who is truly wacky uh, to be the next chair of the Fed. Um, but one should still worry about the process, A, because if there was a wacky nominee and that person was blocked in the Senate, you could have a vacuum at the top of the Fed, which would really unsettle the markets if it wasn't fixed quickly. But secondly, also, you know, somebody who wasn't wacky but was nonetheless not likely to be great um, could be chosen. And, um, you know, they might look plausible because they run a big bank or whatever it is, um, but I think they'd actually have trouble if they weren't economists themselves really commanding the respect of the Fed staff, and that would be a problem. And if they are not adept politically and experienced in Washington, uh, they're probably going to have their knees, uh, you know, kneecapped um, by the process because there's just so many bits of hidden, hidden furniture that you can run into if you don't know your way around that city. Would, would Stanley Fisher, Krista, had been, have, would he have been a good Fed chair? Most certainly. Yes. He had just a wealth of expertise and he had a very, you know, broad analytical way. And I think he was an important advisor to Yellen um, and is an important advisor to Yellen in yeah. the time that he's been there. And he commands um, the utmost respect from everyone in the institution and everyone in the field, frankly. Peter? I'd, I'd absolutely agree. And I agree with um, the criteria that Sebastian would use to evaluate candidates for the Fed chairmanship. I would say I would add to that, too, that there's got to be some sort of managerial ability. Sebastian alluded to this in terms of the relationship between the Fed staff uh, and the Fed chair in terms of the respect they would need. But the Fed is the Federal Reserve System uh, is uh, is a huge, sprawling organization. It's multi-institutional. And so an ability to manage other humans and the, the logistics of it is right. is pretty exceptional. And we've had good. Fit. Actually, I actually think on that that you need to lead. You don't need to manage. Mm. Uh, Greenspan never managed anybody and had no interest in doing so. He delegated that rather successfully. Well, I would. So that's where sure I would disagree with you. I think he he did lead. He, I agree with you. Wasn't a great manager, but I think there are some aspects of uh, his tenure where his bad management uh, came back to bite him uh, in terms of his uh, relationships with. The governors and uh, uh, and others. So I, I I would say that leadership is important. But if you don't, if you aren't able to uh, direct the flow of information and policy through the system, right? Because you're just not interested in it, or you don't have the skill set, then I think that that can be pretty problematic. Uh, and there were times when even successful Fed chairs um, uh, found themselves struggling. Uh, there, Paul Volcker is another example uh, there too. So, um, you know, Stanley Fisher would certainly have met those criteria. Seems to have, uh, have met them, and I'd hope for the next Fed chair, whoever uh, Trump is considering, would would meet those criteria as well. Great to have you all with us today, Sebastian. Thank you for your time on the phone. Good to be with you. Thank you, Peter. Krista, great seeing you again. Thanks, Thanks for coming so much in. For having us. Really appreciate it. Peter Connie Brown, Krista Schwartz from the Wharton School, Sebastian Malaby from the Council on Foreign Relations. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.